0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something.
2: business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you
1: can do. One great rock show can change the world. A former street artist who recorded his first album with Pots and Pans, Willis Earl Beale is now a label mate of Radiohead and Adele. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim Dirigatis
2: from WBEZ and Columbia College. Willis Earl Beale performs live in our studio. Then Greg and I review the new album from one of the biggest rock bands in the world, Kings of Leon. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news.
1: Jim, I know how much you like to join ACDC in Sin City, Las Vegas, to play the slots. You go there regularly four times a year, I hear.
2: I go for the shows.
1: There you go. But the slots and the gambling are no longer the sole draw to Vegas. That's been true for a number of years. But now music is rapidly catching up with gambling as the major draw in the city. A huge industry is developing around the dance clubs there, the DJs and the pop acts that those clubs are attracting a poll conducted this year by the National Gambling Lobby found that 26% of casino goers are now skipping wagering and many of them are gravitating to these major clubs. 21 of the country's 100 most profitable nightclubs are now based in Las Vegas. Seven of the top 10 in Vegas making more than $25 million a year. That is a major Industry. So you've got these big draws, big pop backs doing residencies there. Britney Spears, Celine Dion, Elton John, some of these for multi-year deals. And then the big DJs, Cascade, Avicii, Afrojack, they all perform there. They're all bringing in tons of money, not only drawing crowds, but paying lighting directors for these elaborate shows that they're staging. The laser installations alone can cost up to 9000 bucks a night. But when you're charging 10000 bucks for table service in Vegas, that's not a bad deal.
2: Greg, after Vegas, of course, the next natural place to listen to music is the library right? Uh, At least it's moving in that direction. There's a new app that's been launched called Hoopla. Right now, it's in some 20 library systems across the country, and about a quarter million people are using the app. It allows you to go to the library and to stream for free a film or an album, much like uh, Netflix would stream a movie or Pandora or Spotify or any of the streaming music services. Libraries are setting aside part of their budget, which would previously go to buy your book or mine to pay for patrons having this streaming service. And the goal is to be in 100 systems by the end of the year. I got a
3: bone-bleed stick with termite holes
2: That I can
4: swing out of skull when I'm feeling quite bold
3: I gotta flee my bike without any brakes
4: With my boot heels getting all the concrete scrape.
1: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that stark song is Wavering Lines, the opening track from Willis Earl Beale's new album, Nobody Knows. Uh, Willis was born in Chicago and eventually joined the Army, only to leave shortly thereafter and wind up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He was homeless there for a while, worked as a security guard, started recording music in his spare time in a very crude way. He bought this karaoke machine and a microphone, began recording a batch of songs, created these CDs, which he left all over town along with flyers, And nobody really cared until he was discovered by Found Magazine.
2: Greg, those recordings eventually made their way to XL Records, the label that brings us Radiohead, Vampire Weekend, Jack White, and a lot of other great stuff. They signed Willis Earl Beal in 2012 and released his first album, Acousmatic Sorcery. While he was on a recent tour, we had Willis and his band, Grant Jefferson, Alex Epton, and Melvin Honore, here in the studio. We started the conversation by asking Willis about what artists spoke to him when he began listening to music. I've been left in the dust like a thing from the past.
4: Well, I was basically enamored with the antiquated version of the American storybook, you know, that Kerouac stuff. So it should come as no surprise that, like, Dylan really interested me. And I really learned how to sing soul and blues from Bob Dylan. But I like old man Dylan better than I like the young man Dylan. (laughs) And I noticed that the inflection that he used was very, very much blues. And so I would just try to imitate Bob Dylan. But then, of course, you know, who wants to sing like Bob Dylan? So... But that's the kind of music I dug. Oddly enough, it was Knocked Out Loaded, the first thing that interested that made me interested in any kind of music at all. It was the first thing that I ever got excited about.
0: But I'm too over the edge and I ain't in the mood anymore To remember the times when I was your only man But she don't want to remind me She knows this car would go out of control
1: Not the first album that Dylan fans <laughs> mention right, when they exactly. talk about his probably his not great even work.
2: in the, uh, the list of the top thirty. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right, right.
1: Well, I'm interested <laughs> by that. What, what what spoke to you in that album? I mean, that's that's the one that seemed to. I, I've heard you mention that before. What was it about that particular album that was speaking Girl. to you?
4: Brownsville Girl. I like that. I mean, it just. See, I, I was always a writer, and and I wanted to be an actor, and that sort of. And I liked, I liked stories, and so I I wanted to tell stories too. I don't know. I just, there's something sweet and afternoon about that song. The idea of being on the road with your lady and, and asking how so-and-so is doing and well, you know, he's not doing, doing too well. It's just like, it really, I really understood Bob Dylan instantaneously when I heard that song. Hmm. He was just like an old cowboy, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. on the road. So I could, felt like I could identify and I wanted to write cowboy tunes too, you know, so.
2: Uh, the irony, Willis, of a kid who's grown up on the South Side, where all this musical history happened in terms of blues and in terms of soul, having to go to the 68-year-old Dylan is, is really rare. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Because of all the Chicago hip-hop greats that Greg and I have interviewed, you know, it's it's like the the hip-hop scene kind of frowns on the blues scene. They don't really feel the connection with it.
4: Yeah. I didn't even really feel a connection with blues, nor the hip-hop scene. I didn't feel a real connection with uh, too much of anything. but. When you have a few hard times and you set out on your own path, it just seems like the blues are the are the thing that fits your mood. And mm-hmm. I didn't care about the blues or anything. I didn't grow up listening to Muddy Waters. My granddad did, but I didn't really, you know, he wasn't cool. He wasn't cool in terms of music. He was cool in other ways. Mm-hmm. Like, I dug his style because he wore cowboy boots and he had, like, aviator shades and an afro and sun and, like, sideburns and he drove a Camaro and he would drive down the road, you know, <laughs> but like his music, I, you know, yeah. I kind of became my grandfather once I actually set out on my own, because now like, you know, I grew out my hair and I do cowboy boots and it's weird how things come around like that.
2: Mm-hmm. I think that's what Greg was getting at before. And then suddenly there's this flowering of not only you making music, but making visual art. And writing poetry—that—that that was always. Fiction. I had always been. So done. it was always there. Yeah. Do you distinguish between those different acts, or is it all part of the same?
4: It's—it's it's all the same thing. There's a beauty to what Alex Epton does on the drums. I can't actually do that. You mm-hmm. know, I can't do what Mel does or Grant does, but I can make noise, and I made some noise for nobody knows. So like, it's just no holds barred, trying to express yourself. And the reason why I guess my music comes off as so desperate because it, it kind of was. It had nothing to do with skill. It just had everything to do with, you know, if I can say this on NPR, it had everything to do with being horny and angry and not, having, not feeling like I could be heard.
2: Well, that's that's 70 years of great rock and roll right there. <laughs> <laughs> the impetus for all great music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how, about, how about we get some noise, Willis? Tell us what, what the band's going to play.
4: We're going to try to play Too Dry to Crack.
3: jacket, truck, a high cup of tea I'm just a sitting at the table thinking about me With my marcasins on I'm waiting by that phone With my half-masked like a till drone. I am the deep down. I'll be making my sound When they let me alone With the pots and pans My voice and my hands And my spoon drum stick With this with trance you got to give me a chance I can go. Oh no, don't leave me hanging like a spider with no fly. Cause I've been banging on the wall, cause I'm too dry to dry. Oh no, don't leave me hanging like a spider
2: That was Too Dry to Cry by Willis Earl Beal. The first record, Acousmatic Sorcery, some of those recordings went back to this legendary now, one speaker, karaoke machine, and $40 Radio Shack mic. It was you,
4: $20, actually.
2: $20? $20 <laughs> yeah. That you just started making these recordings alone, starting in, in Albuquerque, right? Yeah. How How do you consider the relationship between these two albums?
4: It's strange because the first record was not a record. That record in particular was not made with other people in mind. Mm-hmm. I, I left it out, sure, but at best I wanted to become a local novelty and be invited to parties. <laughs> and so it was just more of a kind of a like a haphazard demo. <clears throat> People were seriously critiquing it and saying this is Alec, like Alan Lomax field recordings and all this sort of thing. <laughs> like I got marketed as this blues man hobo and it's just like didn't mean anything. It well, was just romantic,
2: you know. In Chicago, there's this tradition, you know, with Wesley Willis. And you know, and in the wider music world, with artists like Jandek, and I've seen those two names mentioned a lot in in pieces about you. People were trying to make you an outsider artist. I
4: was trying to be an outsider artist at first because I didn't believe I had any talent. Not no yeah. disrespect to outsider artists, but it's just I knew I had something vital to express, but I didn't feel I had the chops to do
2: it. You know. Also, all, nobody was opening the door to let you inside.
4: Right, right. So <laughs> I, I I did be, decide to become an outsider artist at that time, but then. When they got when I got signed on the basis of those recordings, I'm like, okay, good, well I can make a studio album. Yeah. And, you know, they were like, well, we like them the way they are. And that mortified me. But you know, when you're working at FedEx and you've just been rejected from the X Factor, you know, you wanna okay, sure, you wanna pay me for this stuff? Fine. But
3: yeah.
4: and then they and they had me do thirteen or fourteen, you know, uh new songs. Like I did 14 songs. 14, 15 songs in two days in the Mm. studio with no instrumental training. But I came through on it because I had already formed my own process for having rudimentary skill, but having very clearly defined ideas about what it is I want to do melodically and what I can achieve. And on the basis of that demo, they're like, okay, we're going to sign you and we're going to release, but they don't release the demos. They release my very, very primitive stuff.
2: Oh, that's interesting. And, so you have this other album out there that you'd rather have seen came out well, first.
4: Well, that's, that's what comprises Nobody Knows. It's yeah. it's it's I reworked those songs, those initial tapes. Well, you
2: know, I ended my review of Acousmatic a Sorcery by saying, you know, I can't wait till this guy gets in a real studio with a producer who understands these kind of sounds like Brian Deck, but somebody who understood the right mix of rough and well-recorded.
4: Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, and you've done that now yeah. with this album.
4: I, I oversaw this album very, very very keenly. I was I have uh, a stand up bass, a keyboard, uh, an electric guitar, and uh I tinker around in the in the apartment in New York and then I would send some stuff to either the producer Matt DeWine or Roddy McDonald and uh I'd tell them, Well, I want this improved, I want this added strings, that sort of thing. I recorded like a maybe like Forty five, forty 40 to 45 percent of the record in Amsterdam and they were completely nervous when I went in the studio because they don't know I don't really you know like I'm not trained mm. and they didn't know I had the any songs memorized and we had to record the record we had to start on it <laughs> and I had just been smoking pure skunk joints and eating hash and and <laughs> it's like what are we going to do here and so I just go over to the keyboard tinker with the keys for 30 minutes giggling to myself <laughs> and then I say, hey, press record, and then I, I do a riff, record that, loop that, do another riff, put that over that, and then I listen to it, and then sing the lyrics I had written in Albuquerque. And, uh, and you know, it's not Beethoven and stuff, but it's it's mine, and I like it, you know.
1: We'll be back with more with Willis Earl Beal in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, Jim and I review the new album from Southern Rockers' Kings of Leon. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim Dirigatis, and that song is called Coming Through. It's by our guest this week, Willis Earl Beal. Willis started his career with home recordings left around Albuquerque, New Mexico, and ended up signing with a terrific label, XL Recordings. And as we pick up our conversation, I wanted to know how Willis felt about that transition.
4: I never felt like I belonged, and I still don't. Um, but uh, it was easy easier for me to take than maybe somebody else because the one extraordinary thing about me is that I have a great imagination. And when I say I have a great imagination, I'm not talking about like an Im- imagination that implements and has to create. I'm talking about I'm able to delude myself for long periods of time and live up there and that's what I did in Albuquerque. And I almost feel like I created this, all of this stuff with my mind because there are competent people around me. And yet I know my origins. I know what I can and can't do. And the only thing I can think of is it's it's not necessarily from my skill, but it's more because I'm, I feel like I'm working with parallel synchronized randomness or something. And I know that sounds insane, but <laughs> I feel like, some sort of electromagnetic brain waves were emitted from my my thoughts, and because thinking is an act it 's a physical scientific act, and I did this with intention, and I created a dream for myself but the the dream you create is not always it doesn 't always represent the things you thought it would represent, but as far as really believing that I am here because of what it is I can do i don 't believe that for one second. But uh, hey, you
1: know,
4: it's. Well, buy the ticket, take the ride, like Hunter S. Thompson used to say, you know?
1: But you're too modest to say this, but your voice is extraordinary. You may not be a musician, quote unquote, but obviously you, you said you haven't had any trading, but when did you discover that you had this voice, this instrument, which has impressive range and a lot of expressiveness in it. I mean, was this something that was with you since childhood, or did you just sort of stumble upon it when you started recording this music in your mid-20s?
4: I I just sort of came upon it. I really didn't even discover it. It was more just hours and hours of, of sitting around and either riding my bike to work and singing along with a Cat Power CD or a Beck CD or something like that, or it was just me experimenting with my voice and talking and singing and yelling and doing all sorts of things i sang on the streets because uh in albuquerque even just because i was bored but i didn't really discover my that i i didn't really believe it until 4 months ago
1: really because I'd seen you perform, and it was like you're basically up there by yourself. I, mean, I was, yeah. Before, before this band joined you, you, you'd done a lot of shows, basically solo shows. Mm-hmm. Did you in any way feel nervous or anxious about going up there with just Absolutely. your voice and, and presenting this to people?
4: 100%. And, and that's what informed my performances. I was resentful of everybody in the crowd. I was re- resentful of the musicians, resentful of myself. I felt like a clown. And so I thought, well, you know, what do clowns do? Clowns perform. So you go out there and you shake your ass. I felt like like a real loser, and I, you know, and and even more so because I had been trying to sort of like dabble with some fame or some notoriety, and failing miserably. You know, I tried out for Steppenwolf here in Chicago, and I got booed at the Green Mill. So I'd always kind of tried to be on stage, and now the universe was saying, "Okay, be on stage. Go, mm-hmm. go and do it." And this resentment helped me to really just kind of loosen up like i looked at the people and i thought about myself and it's just like well this is a surreal experience i'm gonna drink whiskey and i'm gonna gonna go for it and that's why i don't like live performing because it's it totally totally kills me
1: you're listening to sound opinions we're here with willis earl Beale and his band uh willis uh, what are you gonna play for us next
4: we're gonna do uh burning bridges
3: We'll
2: Willis Earl Beale and the band with Burning Bridges. An element of your story that we haven't gotten to yet. You're famous for these flyers that were put up around Albuquerque, that were put up around Chicago. I am Willis Earl Beale. Call me and I'll sing you a song. I want some friends. I'm not a weasel. Right? Yeah. This is this. Is, yeah. All right. You know, so much of your music, when I heard acoustic sorcery. And, and when I'm getting into this new album, nobody knows. It's about the longing for community. And you've said things in interviews like, you know, you, you've never floated your music on the net. You left CDRs at clubs around Chicago uh, and, and and New Mexico. Discover it by living, not by typing. I'm with you on all this. Yeah. On the other hand, you're telling me when you're on stage you feel resentment towards that audience. You know, you're talking about community in so much of your work and in the way you live your life. And I should mention, you're performing here with a mascot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I so, so what's this yin-yang thing happening between the desire to connect with people and some sort of wall between them? Well, that's very easy. It's because,
4: you know, back then, I didn't know what it meant to connect with people. I didn't know what it meant for people to pay attention to you. I I thought that I wanted something, and then when I finally got it, the money was nice, I gotta admit. When I look at the internet, and I see that some people respond, that's also gratifying, but that's kinda like this distant fantasy that I used to have. It's something nice to have in your head and walk around with, and to actually have to go out there and stand in front of it, that's an entirely different thing. Now, it's not that I resent my fans, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to be an a-hole, but everything now is the antithesis of what it is I was before. Nobody understands why or what it actually means. I think that a lot of people kind of, like my management team, they just think I'm a flim-flam artist. But, like, I showed up one time to a photo shoot with this mask on, and, you know, they didn't They didn't dig that, you know, because, <laughs> like, you know, it's like people want, a particular thing and they signed a particular thing and they kind of maybe thought oh, it's going to be Otis Redding. And then I show up in this mask and it's a, you know, so XL records is great, but I just don't want to be put in that kind of box. And I guess it's the age old story. I mean, you know, maybe I'm just, uh, this is just some, some sort of subconscious imitation of Bob Dylan's struggle, but like it, it's a real thing. It's not just me being, stupid or me trying to be want to be understood as an artist I'm more concerned about living now I I, you know I, I want some stability and I want to do some cool things and inspire a few people and then get out and this mask I guess is my protection
2: well I can certainly understand the revulsion towards the industry and marketing of any sort yeah. and people who would you know he is the weird black dude from Chicago outsider artist on the other hand you're kind of a weird dude, man. You know, somebody who loves 68-year-old Bob Dylan and Tom Waits, somebody who loves Beck and can reference Cat Power songs, all right? That's a unique combination of factors. And it seems to me that you have found this incredibly smart, very curious audience that's willing to go with you every step of the way. That's got to be a good thing. Well, I'm— you I mean, know, even if you haven't met them, you now have a lot of friends. I, I don't—I'm
4: don't, not sure that they're my friends. I, I think that they— They feel that I'm kind of something interesting, and uh, everybody's looking for something interesting. And and I'm glad that people think it's interesting. I'm glad that uh, I'm somebody's flavor of the month. But, uh, (laughs) you know, I'm a real person, and uh, I'm not some entity, some talking head, you know? So...
2: You don't think that all of the, the, the messages in your songs about community and, and, and really know. connecting I, with people are, are connecting with people?
4: I, I don't know. I mean, I guess if you call you know, 9,000 people on, your, on, your, uh, on, your, on the Facebook page that they make for you, if that's connecting with people, am I connecting with people? Does it matter? Does anybody care? <laughs> it's, you know, I don't know. You know. There's no way to know that. And uh, I, I don't want to keep guessing it because well, it's going to kill me
1: a fascinating area because this whole thing of identity that you're talking about has, has been a very interesting area in art you know not just music but in the art world and in books and novels and you talk about Dylan you know he, he played a, a character role in that movie Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid yeah. where his name was Alias
0: what's your name boy Alias Alias what Alias anything you please
2: what do we call you
0: Alias. Hell, just call him malias. That's what I'd do.
1: Hey, yes, it is. And the last words are on your album are, I am nothing, nothing is everything. It seemed to encapsulate a lot of the themes you were going for. And it's a an artistic gift to be able to summarize broad concepts that succinctly. Did you have that in mind for a long time? Was that something that you'd been thinking about for a long time?
4: Yeah, yeah. I got this, uh, that... That image on the front of the CD is actually a tattoo I have on my right arm. And I got that tattoo uh, when I was in between houses and jobs, and uh, I was donating plasma. I just thought of the image, and it represented, and, and I put the name Nobody under it. It just meant something to me back then, and I guess, because I'd always felt like a nobody in the negative sense. I felt like I didn't, I felt detached from the world I never really had any morals or virtues or anything like that. So I'd been thinking about it for a long time, and because I, but because I didn't have any morals or virtues, I drifted from place to place and person to person and, and didn't really excel. But when Nobody Knows came around, after two years of touring and looking at people, I discovered this is a chance to expand consciousness or be a catalyst for consciousness expansion. And now... I've decided to brand myself and uh try to brand other people but I'm branding them with nothing. And so you look at me and you see nobody, the sign nobody, <laughs> and then you have to turn to yourself. You know, you have to turn to yourself and that's what I want people to do because that's the only way you're going to get free of of all of this stuff that they're trying to put on you, the wool that they're trying to pull over your eyes. And I'm not talking about my label. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying that you got to join if you want to get out. Otherwise, you're going to wake up in the morning, go to work, come home, go to sleep, do the same thing, and then you're going to die. And uh, that to me sounds really bleak. I don't think I know everything, but uh, I know a little something, and that's what I'm trying to give to people. So I guess I'm, I'm organizing now and uh, after this tour is over after the european tour is over and the american tour is over i'm dropping the sign because you know i don't want to be dogmatic about anything
1: you know we, we talk about this idea of being a musician or do you feel in in any ways that learning about music say studying an instrument or multiple instruments getting better at them in a technical sense is going to help your music or is that something you want to avoid going forward it
4: changes day to day. Sometimes, sometimes I feel like I, I would want to go and learn something. But then other times I think, well, why do that? I mean, because you, you go and spend all your time learning this one thing. And then uh, now you have to go and learn something else just as well. And to me, that's like too hyper-focused on, that's too hyper-focused on craft, the craft of a particular thing. It's too minute for me. I like taking broad broad strokes and so you know it's that sort of like uh jack of all trades master of nothing that mm-hmm. sort of thing like I feel better about covering a lot of ground in a short period and expressing more immediately rather than trying to go through the idiosyncrasies of each individual thing because it's like it's it's mind numbing I will never be as good of a drummer as he is ever why would I even so, why, don't I, why not just be free and just do what I want to
2: do? I love that. I love that. We're listening to Willis Earl Beale here on Sound Opinions. Are you guys going to play us another tune?
4: Yeah, we're going to play Nobody Knows.
3: Dog downstairs To tell you just what the knowledge is that you're trying to pursue, you can get yourself an answer. My tip. Ten-
1: Nobody knows from Willis Earl Beal and his band Grant Jefferson, Alex Epton, Melvin Honore on Sound Opinions. Willis, thanks so much for coming in.
4: No problem. Uh, it's nice. Yeah. This is this is a lot better than I thought it was going to be.
3: <laughs> oh, moon breeze. There's gold in your eyes. I'm staring at the glass. I'm sipping
2: now we want to hear from you. What did you think about Willis Earl Beale? And do you have other favorite artists who got their start on the streets? Leave us a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800. You can also email us at interact at soundopinions.org. Coming up, we review the new album from arena Rocker's Kings of Leon. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
3: Now I'm dancing in the alley in my soul, facing all the dumpsters with no particular goal. The train is just a memory, the road may be kind, as everything unwinds, as everything unwinds. Oh
2: back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that's a tune called Super Soaker by the band Kings of Leon from album number six, Mechanical Bull. Greg, you were on these fellas real early. Caleb, Nathan and Jared Followell Three brothers Sons of a Pentecostal preacher Who came together in 1999 in Nashville Joined with their first cousin Also named Followell Matthew And uh, put together this band That was initially called The Southern Strokes By writers when they began to embrace them It was the new millennium Guitars were coming back in a big way After those years of boy bands and rap rock And these guys were named as players But the big breakthrough took them a while It was actually out. Al- Album number four when they had that huge hit with Sex on Fire and they suddenly made the leap to arenas. You know, there are a few bands, I think, that have formed in the last decade or decade and a half that can headline a festival for 30,000 people, fill an arena with 30,000 people. Kings of Leon are on top of that. It's been an almost three-year break since their last album, which we reviewed back then, Come Around Sundown. It was a, a disappointment to some critics, but it continued to sell. People love this band. Now comes album number six. It's called Mechanical Bull. We'll play a song from it and then we'll give our opinions. This is Rock City by the Kings of Leon on Sound Opinions.
1: That is Rock City from Kings of Leon, the new album Mechanical Bull, the sixth in their career. Go back to album number one. Yes, Jim, I liked Youth and Young Manhood. i thought I'm they going you forget that well, either. I thought I, they had a great take on that guitar wave that was coming out in New York City. They had a, a southern vibe to it, and I love that bluesy edge they were bringing to it. Uh, but since then, they've become this big, bloated kind of arena rock band. Only by the night that 2008 album they really turned the corner with those big U2-like anthems on that record. And this album has more of them. Caleb's voice is the central attraction in this band. The guys relate to this sort of macho personality. The women in the audience love the fact that he's sort of a wounded soul. He's kind of lost in the desert, wandering around <laughs> looking for drugs, looking for free well, sex. I'm looking for love. Yes, exactly. That line in uh, Comeback Story, I walk a mile in your shoes, now I'm a mile away, and I've got your shoes <laughs> <laughs> I
0: mile in your shoes. Now I'm
1: <laughs> This is profundity in Kings of Leon World. That's deep, man. You know you're not you're not gonna get much deeper than that. After Only by the Night, that 2008 album, they basically tried to repeat the formula over the next few albums. You really don't need another version of that album. If you like this band, you've got another album that sounds just like Kings of Leon. If you were not sold on them at all, I'd stay away. This is a trash album for me. It's absolutely a trash-it, Greg.
2: I mean, it was a bad idea to combine you 2 bombast with Leonard Skinner's southern fried finger licking guitar leads right and then the lyrics are just, just so bad I-, I swear you could take the lyric sheet from this album and go on Mark Marin's podcast and have the best comedy routine anybody's ever done it's laughable it's insulting it bothers me that these guys ha- have the hubris to actually present this as music I would like to take a super soaker loaded with sweet tea and just hose them down you know because that's <laughs> what they deserve a double trash it What do we have on the show next week?
1: Next week, Jim, in honor of Halloween, we're going
2: to go down some of the best murder songs of all time. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, and Anthony Martinez. Our intern is Jake Smith. And one final news note, Alicia Keys informs us that she thinks aliens walk among us here on Earth. We just hope they listen to this show. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800.
1: New messages. Hi, Jim and Greg. It's Jeremy Shatton from New York City, and I'm calling about the recent fall roundup show. It was very entertaining, I have to say, and I was especially glad to hear you trashing Haim because I'm completely baffled by the excitement around this record. Not only is it a retread, But it seems to amplify a lot of the most annoying aspects of some of the stuff they're retreading. This kind of breathy, gasping vocal style that the lead singer has is just, uh, I don't understand it. I don't know why somebody would want to listen to that. So keep on rocking. guys, this is Steve Chanahill from Valencia, California. I'm calling about the song Baby Blue as the end song for Breaking Bad. I thought it was perfect. The lyrics, guess what I got? Guess I got what I deserved. I left you waiting there too long, my love. This longing that he had for his product. He was singing to his product. And there is an element in, I think, Badfinger's style, that style, that's kind of maybe a little maudlin, maybe a little predictable, but you know, the Walter White character in Breaking Bad came from suburbia. He was a little suburban guy, and so having kind of a suburban style of music, something you might listen to in the backyard, I thought was perfect. Thought My name's
0: Victoria. I'm calling from Alameda, California. I totally agree about Baby Blue being the greatest possible last song for Breaking Bad. However, I think Rokie Erickson, the 13th Floor Elevator's version, is way better than Bob Dylan. So I agree, but I think it should have been Rokie Erickson. That's it. Thank you. This is Mary Edwards in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I just wanted to call to say that I think that the closing of Six Feet Under on HBO that used Sia's breeze was really powerful. And I wonder what happened to her sales after it was used in that final montage of going into the future with all the different characters.